Hi folks and welcome to another episode of the Leadership Tales podcast. I'm Colin Hunter, your host. Today we have a special bonus episode. Looking back at some of the highlights from our most recent series, Series 3, which contains some of the best interviews we've had yet. And I want to highlight a few of my favorite moments from the guests. We've gone back and found some of the best clips, which we've compiled together for this special episode. So in this episode, what are you going to get? Well, we're going to have featured highlights from Jonathan, Melissa, Nightingale. And again, the stories that they tell, the opinions they have, they shifted a lot of my thinking, particularly around this manager versus leader, which is always a big debate in there. They do some great work there. And that newsletter is powerful fuel for me as a leader as I read that. Mark Green, Activators, great coach, great conversation around that. But just thinking about high level coach works with organizations some of the things he highlights some of the things he works on in there and um, there's a great principle about moving zip code in there and how you shift and change as a leader by doing that melanie debeco tarani story of a b corp b corporation and how tarani have embraced community in the work they do again well worth listening to as an organization leader in terms of how you can do that Carolyn Swar, the concept of trauma and trauma being a, a thing that most of us experience and actually we don't call it trauma. We think about something more significant for trauma, but actually the story of her new work and her new, new book around trauma is, is a powerful story. And that's linked to Stephen Shed, Shed Lesky. And again, Shed probably could listen to that podcast a number of times just to pick up two or three of the key moments that um, he brings into this conversation around the thinking and leadership. And he has a link to what Carolyn was talking about in terms of trauma there as well. And then probably my favorites in terms of my thinking this year uh, has been John Alexander and his work on citizens. And again, it's shaping a lot of the work that I do in the business around the impact on society as a leader and shaping a lot of how I think about myself as a human being in my role in society. So enjoy and let's dive right in. Jonathan Melissa Nightingale. Startup gets held up a lot of the time. When we talk with larger organizations, they either have in-house innovation departments or or they're acquiring startups but trying to preserve some element of the culture because there's a thing there that's very attractive for business leaders in other fields in terms of innovation, in terms of rapid cycling, in terms of like measuring as you go and learning very quickly. And in terms of employment brand. If we're really honest, right, like particularly right now in terms of sort of a competitive market for talent, people want to go somewhere where they have sort of a backdrop of that innovation. But I will say the lived experience of a lot of employees in startup, the pay is often better. It's much more competitive than many industries right now. But the lived experience is not that those people are having a better time in terms of their management relationship, that they have more clarity about expectations or about career pathing, right? There's, There's a great deal of job hopping in startup. Not because it's required, but because it's the only path they have. That if I want a promotion, my own manager doesn't really know how to navigate that. But if I can interview somewhere else and get a a senior title attached to me, if I can get a director title attached to me, then that's how I take custody for my own career path. And I can't fault an individual for doing that, but I can look at those organizations and say, what are you doing? What is your plan for building any kind of continuity here so that You don't have someone come in and do a a 12-month tour of duty and get to the point where they're really thriving and then leave because you have no answer about how to 
to shepherd that growth, right? And it's a place actually where other industries that are a little more established, their workplaces could be just as toxic, but at least they have answers for some of these things around what does progress look like for me? What can I expect if I invest in this way, if I develop these skills, you know, what does my future look like here? When we talk to Mm. hiring managers, you know, we're based in Toronto and and the startup market here is very hot right now. And so there's a lot of competition for talent at all levels of seniority. And sometimes we'll hear from leaders who say, well, it's impossible to hire, right? I I don't Mm. have the money that some of the larger organizations here do. And so, you know, I can't compete against them for somebody who's really looking for cash. And we say, okay, then you can't, right? You don't all have to have the same compensation strategy. And it certainly doesn't have to be a race to the top. One of the things we push on is this talent market has whatever it has, a couple hundred thousand people that are looking for jobs in tech that may or may not be a good fit for you. You don't have to hire a couple hundred thousand people. You have seven open recs, right? You need to find seven people that you can hire. And so the crisper you can be about that story and zero in on those people, the less you have to worry about some unrelated company throwing more money at them. Like you've got to be equitable. You've got to meet the market at least partly where it is. But you have to tell a much richer and more intact story. I'd say like one of the most obnoxious things we tell hiring managers is there's no talent shortage. You're just bad at it. And if you got better at it, you would find it easier. But so many people want to pattern match. They want to say like the person who's going to be right for this role is the person who's done this role for the last five years. And we're like the person who's done that role for the last five years is ready for their next challenge. And it's often, you know, I need to hire away from a competitor who's doing exactly what we're doing in exactly the industry we're doing. We're like, again, many of those people are bored of that challenge and they're ready for the next challenge. And so how are you going to attract people into your organization if your only answer for them in terms of growth is just take the same job that you were doing before and do it again, but with a different logo, you know, on your backpack? Mark Green. When we say a habit... Most of us tend to think of the physical things, keeping a gratitude journal, how I take my coffee in the morning or whatever it is. And I think for us, though, the most profound realization for a leader is the idea that most of the habits that you have that will either help you or get in the way are habits of thinking, not physical habits. And you have to realize that the habit cycle operates identically for physical habits as it does for habits of thought. That is, there's a stimulus, there's a response, there's a reward. And we think that way. There's two mechanisms that I use to help people that are stuck or not getting what they want out of themselves. One is disruptive and the other is more measured. So I write a lot about fear as a motivator in activators. And in fact, activator number one is reduce fear. And it's number one for a reason. And the research is clear. Most of our decisions are fear-based, although you may not acknowledge it at the time. You know, it's about what are you trying to avoid more than what are you trying to get to and want. And it's insidious because for an entrepreneur or a leader, if fear of something, let's say, is preventing you from letting an employee go who might be a good performer but is causing cultural damage inside the business, you know, by just being a jerk or what have you, but you're afraid to let them go because of their high performance and contribution to the business, right? It prevents you from doing the right thing. You know, it's a case of what I call focusing on the 5%, not the 95%. So we're focused on the productive jerk, which is the 5%, and ignoring the 95% of the rest of the company that has to put up with this bozo every day when they come to work. And these are good people and all of this. And so the way that I come about that is I created this fear reduction tool. And this is the disruptive tool. 
because it forces you to be more intellectual about your fear, be more logical about the fear. And I'm in a workshop live, and I have this group of executives using this fear reduction tool. And about four minutes into the exercise, one of them literally takes the tool, balls it up into a ball of paper, (laughs) and throws it across the room. So, of course, I asked, I said, what's going on? And he looked at me and he said, you know, Mark, I didn't have to get through the whole thing to realize how ridiculous it is that I'm holding on to this fear in the face of all of this reasoning that gives me all the proof I need to let go of this fear. And of course, at that point, the clouds parted, the angels started singing, um, (laughs) cue the choir, all of that. And I tell the story now when I do the workshop, because Mm -hmm. what I find is it helps people realize the folly of the fear and just the power of pulling people into logic from emotion, which is the mechanism by which we reduce fear. Interestingly, as an aside, activator number two is to increase inspiration, and you do the exact opposite. Mm-hmm. You want to pull logic into emotion, right, to increase inspiration. They're like two opposing dials on a dashboard, yeah? So that's the disruptive method to change a habit if there's fear involved. And in many cases, there is some fear that's ingrained into why we do the habit in the first place. The other is a more structured approach. I have a change your habit tool, and you've got to acknowledge that you would not be engaged in a habit of thinking or a habit of behaving if there wasn't some reward that was associated with the habit. So what the tool does is it helps you get explicit about what the reward is for the current habit. And listen, some of the rewards for our non-productive habits are pretty crazy because the reward is like to lessen the punishment, not actually a real reward. So you have to be really honest with yourself about that. But the idea is if you get clear with the rewards, you can then design a replacement habit that has a reward structure to it that is better than the reward structure for the existing habit that you want to change. And I don't use the term good habit or bad habit. I use the term productive habit or non-productive habit because I feel like it's more accurate. It's not judgmental. It's more about being in forward motion. Melinda Becco. There's a route and there's a journey that you can take, which allows Mm -hmm. people almost to make mistakes, to learn as they go Mm -hmm. in there, if you take that mindset. But I'm fascinated for the people listening to here to understand, because a lot of them are losing talent. They're walking out the door. And how do you you create pathways? And they say, well, we can't develop a dog worker into into somebody who's in marketing. So just maybe just pause on that in terms of the insights you've had from there. There are a few things. One is, just to give a, a data point, Last year, the year of the great quit or the great resignation, following COVID, the shutdowns, we had turnover rate of 6%, which is extraordinary for a manufacturer, especially in the year of the great resignation. And I would say that that's related to a few things. One is it's in our DNA that when we hit hard times like we hit in COVID, we optimize for people first. So we optimize our financials for people first. So when COVID hit, here we were, we were getting ready for the move. We didn't know how we were going to make it. We didn't know what was going to happen to the business. In the end, we ended up growing, but we didn't know when that moment struck. So we very quickly pulled together different financial scenarios. 
we looked at what happens if we decline by 20%. How will we make it and keep everyone employed and keep supporting our customers? Then we said, all right, we figured that one out. It's not easy. We'll be able to do it though. How will we do it if it's 50%? And we figured that one out. And then we said, all right, our best guess is 20. And that's our safe model. Let's have that as our primary scenario. Now let's turn back to our team because the only way we're going to make it is if we move and we need help. So we turned to our team and said, it's a tough time. Here's what's going on. Safety is first thing. And everyone has a job. Everyone has a home here. And it just takes away a lot of that pressure. These are folks who provide for their families across the board and can be in very challenging situations. And that is in our DNA. And when we think about our core values, one of which is care deeply for people, the first thing we do in a time of crisis is we come around each other and make sure that we're solid, which is why during COVID, it's the first thing that we do. And if we do that for our team, our team can do that for our customers. So once we have our own seatbelts fastened, then we could say, all right, business is okay. We did go down by 20% in the first month, but then we started to grow. The consumer part of the business took off, thankfully. Then we said, all right, let's release these budgets that we have for sales and travel and put it into a new fund, the Toronto Cafe Opportunity Fund, so that we can help cafes and baristas get back on their feet and reopen. So creating that circle of success and doing creative programming during that time frame that could really bring our purpose to life. And then in 2021, expanding that, saying, all right, people are back on their feet and reopened. Let's support communities that haven't had the same degree of opportunity and let's support their growth and development, whether it's the LGBTQ community, BIPOC community. How do we support people who are providing stepping stones in their communities? Carolyn Swara. We need to have a conversation about this big word called trauma. And so I'll give you a few reasons why I think this needs to happen. First of all, when I look at my own story, it was really driven by trying to perform in a workplace and prove my worth. I also started a business two years before he passed away, all while working in this pharma company. And I think I had two promotions in that six years as well. Now, some people are like, wow, Carolyn, that's amazing. You're superwoman. You're great. What was really happening there is I was experiencing a ton of trauma, but the way I was dealing with it was, no, no one needs to feel sorry for me. Head down. Nobody cry. This is not sad. I didn't want anybody's pity. That's a very unhealthy response, but it looks like it's performing out there. And everybody knew the story about my husband. You know, people could see when I was pregnant, Um, like my story was very known. The piece that people didn't know is that my dad died three weeks before my husband died. And my relationship with my dad, which again, I never talked about, was extremely tumultuous. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, from the age of three, I felt a need to look after my dad. You know, my dad was an alcoholic. He couldn't hold down a job. And, you know, I paid some of his bills from as young of an age as nine. And so why do I think trauma-informed leadership needs to be talked about? That was my story. That was my background. When the COVID-19 pandemic hit our world, Hmm. I kept saying to myself, and you know, we're all in lockdown. I'm like, "Eh, it's going to be a breeze. I've been through pandemics before. And that's what I kept saying. Like, oh, this isn't my first pandemic. Like I'm good, hunkered down. And in my head, I was like, oh, well, I had to make it through six years caring for my dying husband, raising these two kids. 
you know, I was locked in my house in a lot of ways, metaphorically back then. The thing is, Colin, is it wasn't my first pandemic. Mm. Replace that word with this wasn't my first trauma. I think that after sharing a collective experience that we have, and we have done it, I want to make it very clear. I know we've done it from, you know, sitting in different boats. It was the big ocean of trauma for all of us, but definitely I was in a, a very privileged position through this one. But, you know, you can't come out of these collective experiences and just pop back into the way things used to be. And we're seeing this in the workplace and people don't know. It's like, oh, there's great resignation and people are stressed. And I mean, our systems are collapsing. Well, they, they were fragile to begin with. And so we need to have this conversation. We can't just keep pushing it under the carpet. Trauma is a universal human experience. I thought trauma was, you know, you get a big blunt force trauma to the head. I just, you, you hear that word blunt force trauma to the head. So to me, trauma meant a physical injury that somebody willfully put upon you with like disdain or hate. So how could I have had trauma in my life when I was loved? and supported and how could I have brought two children into a traumatic experience like they were so loved they are so loved it just didn't make sense to me and as I did more and more reading and learned that trauma in its like just really simplest forms is like our emotional experiences that get ingested into our body that our body tries to we try and cope with an overwhelming emotional experience it's a really really simplified version when I got trained by Brene this is something that she said one of the greatest casualties of trauma is the inability to be vulnerable. And we can't talk about vulnerability if we don't understand trauma. And when I say trauma-informed leadership, I want to be really clear too. It is a big word. A trauma-informed leader is not there to fix people. They're not there to be a psychotherapist. They're not there to help people unpack their trauma. They are there as leaders to create we'll say safe spaces, to create places where your nervous system isn't activated. And those are things like basically letting go of control and accepting, like if somebody's going to be 15 minutes late to a meeting, hey, you know what? That's okay. No problem. Instead of like, we've got so much to do, like I need you on this call or watching the words that you say, understanding that when somebody shows up and is like looking like an asshole at work today, mm -hmm. maybe a quick conversation afterwards to say, hey, is everything okay? This isn't like you today. And you know, we've got an EAP program. If you need more time, let me know. So being a trauma-informed leader is not trying to fix it, not trying to judge trauma, not trying to put labels on anything. Mm -hmm. It really is about being compassionate and recognizing as human beings. We have emotions. We have this amazing analytical head, but we can't use all this goodness in this prefrontal cortex of ours unless we recognize the vulnerability and the fact that we're humans. Steven Shetlesky. I'm interested in your definition of leadership. Yeah, well, so a couple of things come up. One is this notion of there is such a thing as post-traumatic growth, that so long as we rest, reflect, recover, get the help we need, whether by sleep or therapy or whatever, coaching, we can actually grow from trauma. One of the areas where our purpose lives is helping others move through trauma that we've moved through in the past. Hard work, but it's very worthwhile, gratifying, fulfilling work. And that's from your work with Simon, isn't it? So Simon Sinek and working on there as well. Is that part of that? Yeah. So one of the things that Simon's taught 
me and really highlighted for me is when we help individuals and organizations discover and articulate purpose, there's two places that we look. So one, our purpose is an origin story. It's who we are and who we are is where we come from. And so to find our purpose, we go to meaningful stories from our past, our origin story. You know, meaningful doesn't mean positive or negative. It means meaningful. It can be resonant or dissonant. And so there's a process that Simon coined called peaks and valleys, where you sort of take a blank sheet of paper, draw a line down the middle, like a equator of emotional neutrality and bullet points above the line are positive, fulfilling, joyful in nature. And bullet points below the line are valleys. They could be traumatic or they could be tragic or hard. There are experiences in your life that you would never want to relive or revisit. But if you're really honest, They've helped you become who you are today. You know, like I never want to revisit being at my grandmother's funeral. It was the first Mm -hmm. sort of significant person and family member in my life I ever lost. Mm -hmm. But I had a glimpse of empathy for my mother of what it must have been like for her to lose her dad at the age of 15. I always knew that rationally. But as soon as I just experienced a little bit of of loss, I had a moment where I hugged her and I just Mm -hmm. like had a little bit of emotional empathy. And I wouldn't trade it. I'll remember that for the rest of my life. And so that's an example of a trauma. It might be different than the way Carolyn's using it, but a a trauma is seemingly sort of negative or antagonistic event in the story of my life that's actually given me more meaning and given me more identity. Our relationship with our direct boss has more of an impact on our health than our relationship Mm -hmm. with our family doctor. And I've got a couple of those in my family, and I'm very comfortable with that Mm -hmm. statement. We've all felt this, that when we have a great boss, Mm -hmm. they actually make us more mentally and physically healthy. When we have a negative or toxic relationship or an insecure relationship with our boss, it negatively Mm -hmm. impacts our health Mm -hmm. and well-being physically and mentally. So I think a definition of leadership, so I'll I'll take from my colleague Rich Devinney, I'll take from my colleague Simon Sinek. So Rich, who's a retired US Navy SEAL of 21 years, he's a great quote which is leaders aren't born, leaders aren't made, leaders are chosen based upon the way that they behave. If you behave in a way in which others call you a leader, if you behave in a way in which others choose to follow you, you are a leader. The only requisite of leadership is followership. You don't need title. And the reason people follow you is not for you. It's for themselves. It's how you make them feel. You make them feel more inspired about the future. They make you feel as if they have your best interest at heart and in mind. And so leadership is about authenticity and vulnerability and empathy and compassion and decisiveness and taking accountability and responsibility for when things don't go well and giving credit when things do go well. And I'll take from Simon Sinek as well. Simon wrote a brilliant book on leadership called Leaders Eat Last. And Simon says, you know, leaders aren't the ones who are in charge. That's a driver. Leaders are the ones who take care of those in their span of care. Leaders are the ones who take care of those in their charge. When we feel taken care of and we believe in someone and their intent and where they're going, We'll run through walls for them, sometimes literally. (laughs) John Alexander. I think we're living in a moment in time when actually quite a fundamental shift is taking place. From subject to consumer to citizen as the story of the individual in society is a sort of underlying framework of the book. And that concept of the story of the individual is a really important one to me and in my work. 
So the subject story essentially says the right thing for us to do is to keep our heads down, to do as we're told, to get what we're given, on the basis that the God-given few who run society know best, and they will therefore lead us to the best outcomes for society as a whole. It's a hypothesis for how the best outcomes for society as a whole result. It's an idea of what the good is. And it's really the subject story is a bargain of protection in return for obedience, the provision of certainty and, and safety of a kind in return for kind of not asking too many questions. And that story for a long time was actually the dominant story in, in human history, I think, in, in human society, right up to the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th. It's a sort of, it's the imperial story uh, in many ways, subjects of the king. And so that story is rising again in these sort of quite uncertain times, in these chaotic moments. And we can see it very, very obviously in the kind of strongman leader to some of what we might talk about in concepts of leadership in Putin and Trump and Johnson to some extent, arguably, and, and Modi and so on. Like this is rising again. The second story is what I call the consumer story. And the consumer story came to dominance in the aftermath of the two world wars and through the second half of the 20th century. And the consumer story says the right thing to do is to pursue self-interest, to look out for number one, to choose the best option for you from those that are offered, on the basis that if everyone pursues self-interest, then that will add up to the collective interest, that will sort of automatically result. It's the kind of invisible hand or those sorts of metaphors. The Milton Friedman thing of the social responsibility of businesses to maximise its profits is absolutely a kind of consumer story. I remember studying idea. that, yeah. Right, there you go. <laughs> And that rose to dominance in the aftermath of two world wars. And there were some sort of amazing gifts of that versus the subject story. It's a very liberating story. It puts much more power in people's hands. But I think it's been the dominant story for the last 80 years or so. And now it, but it's crumbling. It's really falling mm -hmm. apart. It's reaching its own contradictions are breaking it. It's a story that sort of provides a metaphor that society's a ladder you climb, and yet, like, we have pervasive inequality that's sort of stretching further and further apart and can't function. It's a story that says that the right thing to do is to acquire and to improve one's material standards of living, and yet we, we have an ecological crisis which simply can't sustain ever-increasing material consumption. And and maybe most profoundly, it's a it's a story that, that sort of implies that we're all individuals that we're atomized, that we don't need one another, that we're in independent, and we have a crisis of loneliness and mental ill health, and these crises are actually symptoms of the underlying story. I love the phrase, they're features, not bugs, right? Like they're not, they're not <laughs> yeah. little problems that we can iron out. They're sort of built in. And so you've got the subject story, consumer story, and then the third story is what I call the citizen story. It's a story that I think I'm arguing in the book is actually much truer to humanity and, and, is, and lies very deeply in who we are. I, I argue that we're citizens by nature, actually, that we are collaborative, creative, caring creatures who can and want to shape the world for the better if given the opportunity to do so. And the citizen story, to sort of give it the parallel structure to the subject and consumer, the citizen story says the right thing to do actually is to get involved, to share your ideas, energy and resources to the pursuit of the best society as a whole. And to invite others to do so. And the challenge to leaders, particularly, is to facilitate, to involve, to convene, to tap into that power. Like I say, the moment in time we're living in, I think, is one where 
all three of these stories are now in play again. And you can see it perhaps most powerfully in the context I've already mentioned Putin, but in the context of the Ukraine and the war there. So Putin is very much the kind of subject story, the kind of make Russia great again, the great father of the nation, the kind of the, the do as you're told and we will. And the Western sort of response has been quite consumer story, I would argue, sort of economic sanctions. We will sort of win this war by without having to have consequences for us at home and we will trade our way out of it kind of thing. In the Ukrainian response, the Zelensky-led response, that kind of has actually been a very citizen response. It's been to say, mm-hmm. like, Zelensky made a speech in Russian. He opened the speech by saying, I'm speaking to the citizens of Russia, not as president, but as a citizen of Ukraine, as a peer and an equal. And he said, I want you to understand what's going on. I want you to know for real, because I know you wouldn't be part of this. I know this isn't you. Very different to the kind of great man speaks the great man. He just spoke directly underneath. And this didn't get hugely reported. There was this wave of creativity that kind of responded to that. The anonymous collective declared cyber war on on Russia and took Russia Today's websites and things offline. There there were people using um, Airbnb to make donations to Ukraine. There were people using Google Maps and TripAdvisor to post accurate information about the war as restaurant reviews in St. Petersburg. Like What Zelensky sought to do was give everyone a role. 